Neighborhood Church. To find out more about who we are, go to neighborhoodchurchmn.org. Enjoy the message. So um, we are <laughs> we're continuing our series on, um, what do we call it, flourishing lives and our life giving. And it came from, uh, of all places, my downstairs bathroom. <laughs> I know, really, really great conversation. I had a little sign that says, life giving um, results come from life giving decisions. And we all want something positive. We all want something good and beautiful. Um, but to get that, it, it costs you something. And the best way to describe that is by telling you a story. I was... Uh, I would have been 18, 19. I was, eight, I was right after my first year of college, and Nikki and I, we were dating, and we decided to go um, work at a uh, Bible camp. We worked at a Bible camp called WAPO. Any WAPO people here? No? All right. Well, uh, you could have just lied and said, yes, Dad, just to support me. <laughs> oh, yeah, big fan of WAPO. And it's this huge camp, and it's great. And Nikki and I got to lead, like, this section where it was called Journey of the Cross, and... Um, we camped out, we biked to our campsite, and we cook outside. We biked 40 miles, we'd canoe, uh, we'd go for hikes. It was, it was a great, great summer. Um, and one of the things we got to do was we got to go ride horses. I know I look like a horse person. Like, I know that if you saw my, my family, you'd be like, wow, they make so much money. I bet they have tons of palominos, right? And um, we don't. We didn't, I was, we're not a horse family. I never rode a horse, so when we got to camp... And they're like, we're going to ride horses. I got, like, legit excited. I'm like, I'm going to have fun with this horse. This is gonna be, and I had, like, ideas, like, we're going to be jumping stuff, and I'm going to be racing people and winning money. And um, the rancher, his name was Cash, super, super cool guy. And so cool, I'm not, I don't think Nikki's in here. Um, I tried convincing my wife um, to name our oldest kid Cash, mainly because of him, but mostly because uh, I could say straight cash, homie. Randy Moss would say that, straight cash, homie. And so I'm like, how cool would it be when he gets older and he, like, dunks on someone and he's like, straight cash, homie. I'm like, oh, that's so cool. I even got up in front of the whole church, the whole church. I give a message, and I'm like, we should uh, convince Nikki. This is how great of a pastor I was and a husband. Please convince my wife to change. I started a Facebook group, like, convince Nikki to name my... I'm horrible, gosh. <laughs> um, oh, so Cash gives us the instructions, and he's like, this is what you're going to do? And he's like, uh, and you get to pick your horse. I'm like, I get to pick my own horse? And I look, and I make this, this really deep connection with this horse, and I'm like, I, we, we both felt it. I know the horse felt it, too. And I'm like, that horse belongs to me, and I belong to that horse, right? We are now, we are now one. And Cash is like, okay, go get your horse. And I start walking all cool, and I see uh, one other kid start running. And I'm like, there's no way they're going to beat me to this horse. That is my horse. This is destiny. And so I start running. Now, one thing you need to know is the camp that I was a part of was a camp for 12-year-olds. <laughs> and I outran all the kids. As a grown man, as a grown man, I ran like I was on fire. And I beat that kid. We were both going for the same horse. And I beat that kid. And I looked at him like, sorry, man, this is my horse. And I'm 
looking in this horse's bowling ball eyes and um and uh, I'm like thinking of the jumps, thinking of the races, right? I'm thinking like, may I have to get a new horse shirt? Maybe I'm become a horse person. And Cash comes up behind me, puts his hand on my shoulder, and he's like, "Hey, Chris, um, very kind." He goes, "Maybe we should like, I don't know, maybe let the kids pick the horses." And I'm like, and I snapped out of it like quickly. I got out of it, and I also realized how again pretentious I was. All right, apparently I'm pretentious on horses too, and. <laughs> I was so embarrassed. And it's funny, when you, when I live in a world where I put my needs before everyone else's, I'm not always aware that I'm doing it, right? And is it what I really wanted to push? I didn't push, right? But kind of. I didn't, you know, make contact with a 12-year-old, but I definitely put myself in between the horse and the 12-year-old. Um, is that the kind of life I want? And when, when we put our pleasure, our intellect, our ability to be right, our, even our theology, all right, or our, whatever we think I have the best of and we exclude other people from it, it doesn't get us the results that we really want. And so today we're talking about um, generosity, of what does it look like to be generous. And we're reading out of Matthew 20. And if you'd like to follow along, we always have a whole stack full of good old NIV Bibles if you, you'd like, um, or you could follow along on your smartphone. Um, but we're going to be reading um, the story. I'll read it here in a little bit. To give you some context, you're going to get a couple of, like, really, um, <laughs> again, pretentious. <laughs> I didn't mean to do this, all right? You get some real Bible nerd things. Um, because to understand, uh, not to understand, but to get a, a, a deeper interpretation of the Bible, sometimes it's really good to take a little verse, and it's like your life verse, and you're like, I can do all things, and Christ who strengthens me, right? And you're like, that means I can do all things, and Christ wants me to do all things. Even that verse doesn't talk about you doing, doing whatever you want. There's something bigger going on. And so when you read a story from the Gospels, it's really helpful to understand, like, where was Jesus, like, physically standing? Like, where was his feet? And um, what is Matthew talking about, like, in a bigger sense? Because Matthew has a, a lens and an angle that he's trying to lead his um, readers to end up on. And that's why we have four Gospels, and they're all slightly different. And so it's good to know, like, why this story in this place? And so to get you caught up quickly, Matthew 18, we read two weeks ago, and they say, um, uh, who's the greatest in, in the kingdom? And Jesus said it's about kids, and it's not really just about kids. It's about the least and last, the people that we push aside. And they talk about how do you really love and drastically love and radically love, and they talk about forgiveness. If we're supposed to love, then what do I do if someone hurts me? And Jesus goes in the whole thing about forgiveness. Then he goes to 19, where Jesus also switches to divorce, which sounds odd. But again, Jesus is not just talking about how do you walk through a divorce. He's not just giving precedent. Actually, Jesus here is doing something incredibly progressive, incredibly radical. Because before, right, remember he says, who's the greatest? It's the least and the last. It's the marginalized. It's the forgotten. In that time, a man could divorce his wife on a drop of a hat. He could convince his buddy to say, hey, make this up and say that you saw it, and then we get to go off and live our life and marry someone else where it would decimate the wife. It would decimate the woman's life. It would ruin her. And what Jesus is doing, he's actually giving power to the woman. He's giving power to, and giving voice to the voiceless. So, again, 18, least and last, Jesus talks about divorce. Then all of a sudden, this rich guy shows up. He's like, hey, how do I get on this whole kingdom of God stuff? And Jesus says, hey, just follow these commands. And he's like, done. Already did it. I'm awesome. And Jesus goes, oh, yeah, also, sell it all. Give everything you have away, your reputation, your, your, your money, all of it. And the guy's like, mm, peace out, right? Then Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than the rich person 
to get into the kingdom of God. Then Peter, this will all make sense. Peter then says, um, hey, Jesus, um, we gave everything. If it's hard for that guy, we are poor. We give up our family, our reputation to follow you, our rabbi. So we must get like something pretty, pretty good, right? And Jesus goes in this weird thing about thrones, and then he ends. End of 19 ends with the first shall be last, and the last will be first. So that sets us all up, right? I want you to remember that. What Peter is doing, what Peter is doing is uh, trying to say if it's hard for the rich and we're poor, then we must have special access. We must have really easy access to this kingdom. Then Jesus jumps on it by telling this story. Uh, This is Matthew 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I'll pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. And about five in the afternoon, oh, and about five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around him. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us. So they answered. Oh, that's, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came, to, came and each received a denarius. So when those who came were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Uh, these who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for Denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am so generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. So, taking the story in and of itself, there's a lot going on there. But you can understand Jesus is answering this bigger question right, of who's the greatest, how do we experience the kingdom of God, and there's so much packed in here, right? When you read a story or you hear a story, you maybe have a picture in your mind, maybe you have some feelings, maybe you have some questions, and that's called your interpretation. And in this room, we should probably have about 20 different interpretations of this text based on our experience, our trauma, um, our education, um, our um, positive experiences with the Bible, maybe some negative experiences, what people told us, and that is very, very Good. But if that's where it ends, if the interpretation just ends with whatever I think and what I want and what I'm feeling, we're missing the plot. Because what the Bible is meant to do always is salvation, right? Salvation, or I call liberation. And salvation is not just I am saved from my wretched self in this wretched world, from the wretched things, and then I get to go somewhere at some point in the future with someone with this God. Salvation is uh, resurrection. It's being saved from this ordering of this world. It's saved from um, this is how I define success, and this is what I define as pleasure, this is what I define as beauty, and this is what I define as good. Jesus is saying the way you order this world, go for it. it, There's a whole new way of being human, and that's what we were born into. That's what we're saved into. So the interpretation just leads me just to have some thoughts, but never brings me to a place of where I'm actively helping liberating or bring freedom to myself and those around me, we've missed the plot. But it's one thing that 
the American church has excelled at is just staying at that interpretation. One thing that's really, really good is to take your interpretation, right, put it aside, and listen to other people's interpretations or other people's theologies. And I used to be really afraid of this. I was very afraid of reading different theologies. I thought like, no, no, I have, <laughs> imagine this, this is like the whitest man thing in the world, right? I have the best theology. I have the right theology. <laughs> and even the idea of having different interpretations of the Bible felt scary because the way I was trained is that the word of God, right? And they, I did this while I'm taking it, i shake it like this, right? Because this gives it more authority that the word of God is infallible, means it never fails. And I deeply, deeply believe that. I believe the word of God never fails us. The word of God inspires us to question, inspires us to grow, inspires us to evolve, inspires us to love. But right on next to it, it was that the word of God is inerrant. You guys ever heard of that word before? I know Melissa's a big fan of that one, right? (laughs) The inerrancy of the word of God, right? And inerrant means that the Bible has zero errors, like nothing, no errors at all, which I would highly disagree with, right? We could read like three verses, and like God kills everybody except no one's family because he hates them. I'd say, well, does God really hate people? And that, is that an error? Is that an error? Is there a bigger story? I shouldn't even bring that up because they're all thinking about that now. So, <laughs> right? And the reason they say there's no errors because they say there's a, one interpretation. Every verse, there's one true interpretation. If we can just find out what that true interpretation is, then that will help us be even holier. It'll help us be even better. And funny, everyone thinks they have the one true interpretation. As church history, there is, I don't know, lots of different interpretations about what baptism is or what salvation means or what it means to, to feed and take care of the people around us, right? And I had a great... I had a great conversation. I don't know why I'm telling this, but me and my friend, we were hanging on the golf course, right? Yes, I'm a middle-aged white man. I play golf. It's like, I think I'm obligated. And we're on the golf course, and we're talking about this theological issue, and I said, well, you know, you know the Bible says this, and um, this is what I think, and I really don't even try converting people, if that's the word. I, I don't try getting, like, Mike to get on my page, and you have to see it like me. I love a variety of thoughts about the Bible and about the divine. I think we're better, we really, really are better, where we can come at it from different angles if we're moving in love. That's the key. And I said, well, you know, I, this is what I think the Bible says about it. And he goes, oh, yeah, Chris, that's your, he was compliment. That's your interpretation. What the Bible really says, I'm like, whoa, stop. We're, you, you can't do that. You can't say, well, your cute interpretation, pat on the head, but the real interpretation, I said, whatever you're going to say, your thought. You're reading this Bible in English. Someone had interpreted it from Greek, right? And think what these words meant, how it should be um, said. And that person who was looking at that manuscript was interpreting, the person who wrote that manuscript was interpreting from another manuscript. And they were, and clearly we have in church history and letters, we it's adapted and changed and evolved over time. And we have zero of the original manuscripts, right? So everything is interpretation of interpretation of interpretation of interpretation. And some, that makes some people feel nervous. I think it's beautiful. It's the most human thing. And we don't have to be afraid of being human. We don't have to be like, well, no, the Bible is holy. To, to be human is to be holy. And to be human is to evolve. It is to interpret. It is to grow with knowledge. When you have more wisdom, you change your behavior. You change your behavior, you're going to find more wisdom. That is just, that's what we do. All that to say. Interpretation, I think, really matters. But it's good to take, for me, um, to take my, uh, my white male um, and my experiences, um, 
theology and set aside and listen and read to other people's theology. And there's a whole big world that did not know about theological perspectives. There's queer theology. There is black theology. There is feminist theology, feminism, feminist theology, and womanist theology. Those are two separate things. Um, and there's Hispanic theology. And when I was getting ready for this message, I... Um, I, read, I, I forgot to write it down. I don't remember. I will post it later, um, his name. And he's a Hispanic theologian. And he was talking about this verse that we just read. And it was really good to read this story and thinking about other people's experience that's different than my own. Because when we can hear their stories, it can bring us to a bigger way of seeing who God is. It can see us a bigger way of who we are and how we can show up in the world. And the first thing he said was that as he read that story, he could see the people in his church. He was on the southern border in, in Texas, and seeing these reader or these people showing up to be in the fields to get hired, he goes, I have people in my church that do that. They show up and wait to get picked up to do these daily jobs. He goes, we have people who show up to these rich suburbs where they wake up at 3.30, get there to make sure the garden's all looking good so that person come out with their cup of coffee and not be distracted on their way to work. They'll show up to take care of their kids, so they go out and make exorbitant amounts of money while they take care of the kids and put them down for naps. They're out in the fields um, picking our food that we all get to eat. They are in the kitchen. They are in the hotels cleaning things. He goes, so when I read this story, as part of, not, as he was saying, as part of the Hispanic culture, we can, we can recognize this. I can't. Right? I think one time I went to Manpower when I was 18. I'm like, hey, you got any work for me? And then I never went back because the work sucked. Right? And that's it did. It was horrible. I got underpaid. And because of my privilege, right, I can say, oh, I don't need to do this. I can actually walk in and meet one of my dad's friends. They can give me, you know, way more money than that. So this is not a lived experience for me. And he began to draw some, um, conclu- not conclusions, some lines that I think are really, really important, like this. Oh, this is a good one. Um, they, in, the, in the Hispanic culture currently, and the people who were hearing the stories that Jesus was telling, they would have been poor peasant people, right? They would have been, um, um, yeah, they would have been hearing the story, and Jesus maybe even like was with a field behind him, pointing to things and talking to people. And in that time, they were part of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire, right, had an economic system, and the economic system was booming. And why? Because of slaves, yes, right? The empire was built on slaves. And the way the, the, way the economic empire continued was on poor people working for free, well, not working, being forced to work, or for incredibly low wages. But because of that, the upper echelon people got the benefit. And America, <laughs> we're totally different, <laughs> right? America, how was it formed, right? We have this nice... Um, white savior story, but the way, if you want to read more about us, look up on the 1619 Project, right? 1619 Project. America was founded and was able to flourish on the backs of black people, right? Of, his, uh, of people of color. It's how we were, we went to war because they said, hey, we don't think that maybe we should force people to work. Maybe they can be fully human. The whole part of our country said, hey, we're going to kill everyone, <laughs> right? We're going to go to war over that. And today, right? Today, we still have an economic um, philosophy of that is dependent on low-income workers, right, and illegal immigrants working for little, for little and sometimes no money. Now, this is a very touchy subject, I'm aware, right, if, about, Im- about immigration and immigrants. But people who say, we have to get rid of all the, the immigrants and we have to get, you know, we have to get those jobs back, 
personally, I don't know anyone that's running to go fill those jobs. But it, let's just say we did. Like, even I heard one senator um, uh, got on TV and he said, you know, all these illegal immigrants are coming to replace us. Replacement theory, right? And what that does is saying they're coming after us, and guess who's the victim then? We are. We are the victims of all these people coming to take all our, all our rich, or all our privileges, and our way of life. Okay. But let's say we could just, for argument's sake, we could hit a button, and any person who's, who's in this country illegally just went back to automatically deported. If we did that, the economy would crash so fast because we have set up our economy for low and poor income workers so that we can not charge as much and then the middle management and upper management can get more profits and we benefit it. And economists say it's, it sucks that there has to be casualties, but we need it. That's capitalism. And so in that, in that story, there is still people, and we'll get to it in a little bit, but at the end, they're even trying to compare one another who should be richer than the other person and I deserve to get paid more. That's just how it works. And the money that they get is a denarius, which would have been enough money for you to eat and maybe, maybe feed your family for one day. So it's not like this. Whenever I read this story, I always thought it was like, oh, it's this exorbitant amount. And because we live in a world of excess, right? And we think of um, getting something for work. It means I'm going to have so much more. This is, this is a story of Jesus saying, like, God sees your need and give you exactly what you need. And maybe just a little bit more, but it's not this huge, huge blessing. And of course, what happens is um, they are bringing these workers in. Uh, the first ones came around 6 in the morning to get out of the heat, and then they keep bringing people in. And there's several ways of thinking about these, these workers. Um, <laughs> one theologian said um, the people who were getting picked last, Jesus says in the story, um, well, why has no one hired you? What are you still doing here? And his, uh, their, their take was, oh, these are lazy people. These are people who slept in and were gossiping, and the landowner's like, fine, I'll take you, you lazy people, come with me. That's you know, one way of seeing it. Another way of looking at it is um, that maybe they had some of their fields of their own. It was harvest time, and so they went and took their small fields, harvested, but still they needed to show up so that they could feed their family. Another way of looking at it is the people who got left behind for last were the least qualified, maybe the least desirable, maybe because of their family's um, heritage, Maybe their body type wasn't what people thought this is what a good, strong worker looks like. Maybe the way they talked. Maybe the way they smelled. Maybe um, some of their former decisions. Maybe they weren't most able-bodied people, so they just got left behind. But this landowner keeps coming and keeps including, right? That's like, or another way of looking at it is maybe they were going around, this isn't the only field. Maybe they're going around and finding jobs at other places and still showing up. The key is, is the landowner kept going back and including people again and again and again. And of course, when you get to the end, the, the landowner says, we're going to pay the, these people first that, who got hired last, and the, the, la- the person who got hired first, again, complains, right? And he has a legit complaint. He has the receipts, as hit people say. I'm trying to, I'm trying to incorporate it into my language. I, is it working? Is it working? Yeah, he says yes. Yeah, he's like, yeah, it's, totally, it's totally working, right? All right, he is saying, I can prove that I should get paid more. I worked longer. I was in the sun more. I'm more tired. I gave more. You benefited more off of me than the person who worked for one hour. And what he is doing is the same thing that Peter was doing earlier. He is trying to put himself in a position of this is what success looks like. 
This is what I am worth because of how I show up in the world. This is what I am should be my reward. And he's putting this order in this world. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Peter, like the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And again, this landowner is saying, what you are saying is that this person is worth less than you. And what I'm saying, everybody gets included. What I am saying, there is this way you want to order the world is, is foolish. It's bringing destruction. It is bringing harm. We don't need to rank one another. We don't need to walk in the room and judge each other. So what generosity looks like, and generosity is so much more than just money. Generosity means that I'm going to start and believe that you have invaluable worth, Janine, and that you are, you are good and that you are beautiful. And it's easy to walk in a room and say, um, I'm going to be, the, I'm gonna like be a gatekeeper of my compassion. I'm going to be a gatekeeper of my affection. I'm going to be stingy of how I'm going to use my kindness or how I'm going to use my leadership or how I'm going to use my experience, how I'm going to use um, my, my pleasure, how I'm going to use my money. And we do this all the time. And we call that judging, right? Like, <laughs> I l- almost pushed a 12-year-old over to get the horse because I want it before everyone else. And we, we, we do this similar things every day. Like, um, one of the benefits of getting up and talking in front of people every week is that I get to process with you, and you get to see the stupid stuff I did, and I get to talk about it publicly. I, um, I was getting ready for this message, and I went, again, I was golfing. <laughs> I went to the golf course, and there's a guy, he just walked by, walked by, and because of how, um, what he looked like and what he was wearing, I instantly judged, oh, mine was swore, I judged him a lot, Right? I judged him a lot, and I caught myself, and I had this thought in my head. I'm like, yeah, he's probably this kind of guy, but he's going to do this, and I bet he, and I stopped. I'm like, what am I doing? I, I am, I've never even met this person. I've not even talked to him, and I'm already putting him in an order of what my world is worth, and I put, funny, I like to put myself up here a lot, and I put him down here, and I instantly was convicted. I'm like, there I am. I am, I am being stingy with my, of what? What does it cost me to say, wow, I hope that guy has a great round of golf. I hope that guy's happy. I hope that guy is killing it at his job. It costs me nothing. But when we, when we do that, we're missing on the kind of life that we really want. So you have to get clear. What kind of life do you really want to experience? And if you want to get to a place of flourishing, if you want to experience salvation, generosity has to be at the core. Generosity has to be at that foundation. And what, to be generous means that we actually have to give. <laughs> right? Because, again, we love the idea of being generous. It's like, oh, man, yeah, I'll be generous with my compassion. I won't judge people. Okay, so what does it mean to be generous with your compassion? How are you going to, like, actually show up in a room and give compassion to someone else? Because if it's just a feeling and it doesn't change anything in the world, then we've missed the plot. Then we've missed the gospel. What would it look like if we could actually bring some sort of transformation, not just in our lives, but in the lives of the people around us? If in that story, the, the denarius is, means they're going to actually like, give you just enough to meet a need, just to eat, like, what if we could do that? What if we could be so generous that we could actually begin to take one step towards meeting the needs of the people in our town? I can give you a couple. And first, if you don't know what the needs of the people around you are, then it means you're not looking. It means you're not even listening because there is needs everywhere we go. I had, um, I, when I get to interact with um, um, a lot of people who are desperate. 
when they're desperate, they call the church. If something's horrible in their marriage or their family, but the most calls I get is like when I got, I got two of them this week. One was this lady who said, um, this is really embarrassing. I don't have enough money to buy undergarments. Can you, can you please give us some money? I had another guy call and say, this is really embarrassing. Um, I don't have any, um, I ran out of pillowcases for my kids. Like, do you think you could? Every time I get those phone calls, my first thought is, it, it must be really, really hard. It must be really, really hard to be poor. It must be really, really hard to be desperate. Because it's not easy. Imagine they don't wake up one morning and say, hey, I can't wait to call a stranger and ask for money for my underwear. Right? But where are they going to go? Like, what if, right? What if, like, we, we get to meet the needs of people in this community as neighborhood church. Part of when you give to this church is going to help, help people like that. And we are committed, <laughs> we are committed to, to doing it. Right? Like, I was just telling Nita, we're in the black financially as a church, like, in the tens. <laughs> not, not hundreds, not thousands, but we're, we're making it. Right? So we, we can give some money away. Um, and we are radically committed to making change. But what if, what if, like, we are the church? What if we could do that to our neighbors? What if we could do that for our kids in school, if you have kids? What if we could do that with our friends? And all it takes is being willing to see the need and then try something. A lot of times we're like, oh, I don't know what to do, right? You hear your story from your neighbor and they're in need, and you're like, well, I don't know what to do. So then we just distance ourselves from it. And why do we do that? Because it hurts to give. It costs you something. When your friend says, hey, uh, can you, um, <laughs> Mike, right? It costs something for Mike when I say, I have no idea how to build a deck. Now Mike is wrapped up for four hours that day trying to tell me about Pythagorean's theorem. I'm like, I don't understand, right? It's 45 minutes, right? But I'm saying, oh, there's more coming, Mike. Don't worry. <laughs> there's hours on that deck with you, right? It costs you something. So all I'm saying is, is what would it look like for us to be a generous people? And the way that we think we're so much better, and the way that we think uh, I get to be close to God because I do this, that I get to be so much more included because this, what Jesus is saying is stack and order the world, but there's a whole new way of ordering. There's a whole new way of being human. And to participate in that means to give. So where I want to end, because I think I wouldn't be doing the text justice. And then is Nikki here? Are we going to do one more song? No? No, no, I'll, I'll, I can, I'll, I'll sing for everyone. You guys can just listen to me. <laughs> listen to me for 45 minutes singing. Um, is um, one theological concept on, one interpretation on this is that clearly God is the landowner. And um, the, the people who are being hired, who get hired first, would have been uh, the Hebrew people, right? And they put in the most time. They put in the most sacrifice. They were in exile. They kept the law for longer and longer. And all of a sudden, at the very end, there's these Gentiles. There's these outsiders. And God is saying, right? And they're like, well, we've done more. Shouldn't we get more of you, God? Shouldn't we have more access to this kingdom? Don't we deserve it? Right? We got receipts. And at the end, these people who just show up is this invitation of this, this whole new way of engaging with God, whole new way of being human. And I think that's beautiful. A God that says yes and yes, everyone's included because that's what a generous God, and that's what a generous people do. Let's stand. I'm going to pray. So God, we love you.
And I thank you for your generosity and your benevolence. I thank you that I get to be a recipient of that grace, that love, that liberation, and that freedom. And I ask that you would help um, us as a community, people in this room, people listening to podcasts, people watching online, that we can see where we are stingy or we can see where we're kind of like gatekeepers or we judge people or we withhold parts of ourselves. We withhold our kindness, our empathy, our words, our art, our money because we think people are worth and people aren't worth it. Instead, we can move into that resurrected life that our body and our, and our, our words and our money and our, even our theology and our emotions, all of it matters and all of it can bring transformation, all of it can bring love and beauty and help us to, be, to give that freely. Help us to be able to be incredibly, incredibly generous. Help us be able to see the needs of the people around us. Help us be able to see the needs that maybe even we have ourselves and that we can be advocates for what we need as well but wouldn't stop at one or the other, but that we can move in a place of love. So we love you, God. Be with us. Amen. Thank you, everyone, for coming to Neighborhood Church.